Just as we can't imagine computing today without a keyboard, mouse, or multi-touch, going forward, we won't be able to imagine computing without co-pilots and natural language prompts that intuitively help us with continuation, summarization, chain of thought reasoning, reviewing, modifying, and acting. John, just watching you, listen to that. I wish I had been taking video. Oh. You were clearly impacted by Satya's message and perhaps not in the way that he intended. It's so perfect. It was like that was put into an AI. <laughs> was that AI? Was that AI Satya? <laughs> Hi, and welcome to GeekWire. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. And I'm GeekWire co-founder John Cook. We're coming to you from Seattle, where we get to report each day on what's happening around us in technology, business, and innovation. What happens here matters everywhere. And every week on this show, we talk about some of the most interesting stories in the news. Coming up later on, I'm going to try and convince you, John, that AI is the future. Well, it is the future because this is not your real voice. It's an AI-generated voice, correct? Oh, don't reveal the secret. Come on now. <laughs> not yet. We're not there yet. And then also, it's really a watershed moment in the debate over remote work versus work in the office. We'll talk about that coming up as well. But first, John, one week ago, it felt like the world was crumbling down. A majority of startups in the Seattle region, at least those backed by venture capital firms, didn't have access to their cash. And it felt like Things were just falling apart. A week later, what's your assessment on where things are with Silicon Valley Bank? Things are in flux. They've stabilized from the point that people were in a mad dash, scrambling, moving money from bank to bank and just in a crazy frenzy. But it's still not settled. And I think people are still concerned and worried about how this is all going to play out. So I would say there's a little more information available to folks. And at least from what we've heard, most people have been able to make payroll and get access to their cash, which was the panic at this time last week. But now I think with access to that capital and with getting a little more stable banking partners in, the companies are feeling better. But still, there's a lot of instability here in the entire banking system and people are concerned and worried. And I would say there's been a chilling effect across the entire startup and venture capital ecosystem, which may linger not only for days, but potentially weeks and months. Because remember, we were already in a pretty chilled environment. And then you threw this situation with Silicon Valley Bank on top of it, and things just came to a complete stop. So it's just a matter of how long that's going to stay in effect, it's unclear at this time. Just as an example of how dynamic the situation has been, you recorded a podcast on Monday afternoon with Aviel Ginsberg and Kirby Winfield. And one of the key points that Aviel made from Founders Co-op was that the access to venture debt was really uncertain. And he pointed out that for folks who had already drawn on their lines of credit, they might be able to keep that money. But he, at that point, was assuming that the availability of lines of credit that had not yet been tapped was going to go away. And at the very moment we posted that podcast the next morning, the Silicon Valley Bridge Bank, this entity that's been created in lieu of the former Silicon Valley Bank, came out and said they were going to be honoring those loans. So things have just been so dynamic. I think that's my combination, correction, clarification, slash update for folks and example of how crazy it's been. 
Yeah, it's moving in real time and very quickly. And I mean, one of the crazier stories was you had companies that took all their money out of Silicon Valley Bank, moved to another bank. And then you had this plea by the new newly formed Silicon Valley Bank, Silicon Valley Bridge Bank, and this enticement to say, come back, bring your money back to us. And it's just kind of a wild situation. And some of the entrepreneurs and venture capitalists we were talking to, they were saying, well, gosh, now Silicon Valley Bridge Bank is fully insured by the federal government. Well, gosh, that's looking a little bit better than a First Republic Bank or some of the other options out there. So it was almost the most stable bank option by Tuesday. And so it's been a roller coaster. I don't think it's good for anyone that we're on this roller coaster ride. And it is causing some pain and stress. And I don't think it's played fully out, frankly. For me, as someone who historically has paid more attention to the Microsofts and the Amazons of the world, and I dabble in startup coverage as it interests me, and I live vicariously through the likes of you and Taylor Soper and others on our team who spent a lot of time covering startups. I was aware of Silicon Valley Bank. I was aware that they were a major player, but the extent to which they were just an integral part of the startup ecosystem. I mean, they are basically the electricity provider to, you know, to the startup ecosystem and the extent to which that has been illustrated by this entire meltdown to me has just been astonishing. Yeah, I mean, Certainly not many folks saw it coming. And I think your point that they were the electricity is a good one, which when you shut off the electricity to anything, that's not a good situation. And I think a lot of people are concerned and worried that a bank like Silicon Valley Bank, I mean, if we're talking big picture here now, like a bank like that, that specialized in entrepreneurship, innovation, and gave loans to pretty risky ventures, which is, when you think about it, part of the U.S. economy has been built around this notion that very innovative, creative entrepreneurs can come up with ideas, build them, and get them financed, both through venture capital and a bank like Silicon Valley Bank. If that starts to chill, you start to wonder what happens to the overall innovation ecosystem of the United States, which has been a hallmark of the country for you know, 50 years. And so all that's kind of teetering right now, not to make this super dramatic, but when you think about it, there are long-term consequences to this collapse. And it's unclear how that's all going to play out. Now, another player could come and emerge and, and take on that role. I don't see that happening in the short term. What I see happening in the short term is the bigger banks getting bigger and the loan terms getting more stringent and harsher towards entrepreneurs and it becoming harder to raise money. That's what I think is going to happen short term. And that's chilling for the venture capital and startup ecosystem. Long term, just to turn this around, this sounds like an entrepreneurial opportunity for some kind of ambitious bank or ambitious venture that wants to become a new type of fintech for the startup ecosystem. Maybe that's trivializing it because you don't just reinvent 40 years of history. Yeah, it is. But it's like a lot of people are also looking at Silicon Valley Bank and, and would make the argument that, well, the reason the bank collapsed was because they they were in too risky of 
they weren't too risky of a business, you know, and it was, it's that there's a reason why not many banks loan to a startup entrepreneur that has no revenue, a basic idea and nothing behind his or her business, you know, so it might not be a great banking idea. It certainly was for 20, 30 years and they made it through several other meltdowns. Silicon Valley Bank did, but this one certainly claimed them and it's hitting home to the ecosystem that we cover really closely at GeekWire in terms of startups and venture capital. For me, the ultimate irony was illustrated by something that Kirby Winfield said on that discussion that you had with him and Aviel. And that was about the fact that Silicon Valley Bank just made it easy for these startups. If they wanted to wire money here or there, and it was just easy. And that was a key part eventually and ultimately of their downfall. They just made it easy for these startup founders to execute a bank run that brought the bank down. And it's just amazing. Well, that is a big component of it. This is a very technical audience that has access to their money on their phones. And that is one of the reasons why this run occurred and occurred so quickly is that people were just moving money at the speed of a click on their mobile device. And so it's it's unique in that regard, but potentially a harbinger of what's to come as more people shift to that type of banking. So it's it's a certainly a fluid situation, and I'm not going to sit here and say I know how things are going to play out, but I don't think it's over. And I think people are a little running a little gun shy right now on the entire market. And that's not good when you see things freeze up like that. We'll see where, where it goes. All right. We are continuing to track the aftermath of the Silicon Valley bank collapse, and we will link from the show notes on this episode to all of our coverage of this ongoing story. Coming up next, a flashpoint in the debate over the return to the office. You're listening to GeekWire. I wanted a career in IT, but I didn't know where to start. WGU makes it simple. Their accredited online degree programs cover all kinds of IT specialties, and they have valuable industry certifications built in at no extra cost. The payoff? Having those certs back up my degree makes me look even better to future employers. A nonprofit university that includes top industry certs in their programs? I choose WGU. Learn more at wgu.edu backslash IT certs included. Welcome back. It's Todd Bishop with John Cook. John, you were busy this week, man. You had a couple of really good stories on the site and one of the core topics that you covered was this debate over the return to work. First off, you went to a downtown Seattle Association annual meeting where it was almost like they were trying to defy gravity <laughs> and get companies to bring their employees back to the office and specifically to downtown Seattle. Let's listen to this clip from John Scholes, who is the president and CEO of the Downtown Seattle Association. Two, we need to return more workers to the office. Look, I'm biased on this. I think a lot of people in the room are biased on this. And I've never thought it was my job necessarily to get between employers and their employees on these decisions. But it is my job to help us all understand what's at stake when it comes to the number of people that are, continue to work remotely and what it means for our downtown. But you can see the scale of about 340,000 jobs assigned to downtown Seattle and what that means relative to other users in our downtown. It's a big deal. These folks are customers for small business, for the salon, for the barbershop, for our arts and culture community. 
and we're not gonna replace them with a ton of residents overnight. And I think we should be looking at office conversion to residential, we should embrace that, but that's not a vaccine to the remote work affliction that afflicts our, our downtown right now. So I'm not here to tell employers what policy they should have with their employees, but I am gonna hold up what's at stake here, and there's a lot. And I think there is an approach here that can work for workers, that can work for employers, that can work for great culture, and that can work for downtown. There, there is a way forward here. And I think Amazon's identification and stake in the ground of a May 1 return for three days a week gives us all something to rally towards. The remote work affliction. <laughs> there certainly are a lot of people who would not consider it an affliction. They would consider it a, a, a new era. Yeah, I thought it was a really choice of words by John Scholes. I mean, boy, but I mean, in his role as a person who's trying to revitalize downtown, it certainly is an affliction, but not everyone in the tech world sees it that way. In fact, you could make the argument that most people in the tech world don't see it as an affliction. They see it as this new era of flexibility. What's interesting there is you've seen this flip in this entire situation where the advocates for downtown Seattle and the administration of the city of Seattle, led by Mayor Bruce Harrell, are suddenly aligned with Amazon, which is really uh, yeah. an alternative I mean, well, that's universe. That's a good story angle, Todd. I hadn't thought about it that way, but you're right. They are yeah. super aligned. Yeah, you had many, many years where that was not the case, and not so much the Downtown Seattle Association. I think in a lot of ways they've been aligned with Amazon over the years, but certainly the city government in Seattle has been at odds with Amazon over taxes and everything else. It's been a real switch in that regard, at least on this one issue. Absolutely. And I think that's an interesting angle for sure. The Downtown Seattle Association was very much applauding Amazon's move of bringing back their workforce three days a week starting in May. They feel it's the boost that downtown Seattle needs. And uh, you can certainly see that playing out if you have tens of thousands of Amazon workers back in the office, they're going to be shopping more, going to more entertainment and going to the coffee shops, the bars. So it is dramatically needed. I mean, at the end of the day, when you think about this, what is needed in downtown Seattle and many urban cores across the country is they need a critical mass of people post COVID and Seattle is among the worst cities in term, I guess, Worst is maybe not the right word, but they have the least amount of foot traffic back to the office. And I think that's in part because Seattle is a high-tech city and number of high-tech employers. And obviously, it's easier for those folks to work remotely. But things are changing in that world with this mandate to get people back from Amazon, Starbucks, other companies are, are now mandating time in the office. Very interesting to see how this is playing out. On the other side of this debate, you separately were able to interview Rich Barton, who's the CEO of Zillow, which historically has been a major employer in downtown Seattle. They have 5,700 workers overall, 1,500 of those in Washington state, but they have effectively switched to this notion that Rich Barton calls Cloud HQ. He feels, as he told you, that, quote, when you give people something they value, you can't stuff the genie back in the bottle. He just thinks the world of work has radically changed post-COVID. And he 
doesn't think we're going back and he's embracing it and trying to develop a workforce. And he's really excited about this. It's interesting talking to Rich Barton, it gets him fired up. He's like, he feels as if he's reinventing the world of work. He said he, he called it his little lab. And this really excites him in terms of how you can motivate people to be more productive and how you can diversify your company through these means. There are a lot of benefits that he's seen related to a remote workforce. And you can see both sides of the story. I think personally, and folks have always argued you never want to be stuck in the middle. <laughs> it's the, you, want, you want to be on one side or the other. Being in the middle is where you get torched. But to me, it does seem like the hybrid model of in the middle is the best approach here. Of course, you want to grant flexibility to your staff so that they can go to their kid's ball game or their doctor's appointment or take care of a family member and not be stressing that they're in the office. Of course, everybody, I think, recognizes there's value to everybody in the organization if that is allowed. And then I do see value in getting people together and doing it more regularly. I mean, Zillow does bring people together once a quarter for what they call their Z retreats in a very highly concentrated form. And so I think whether that works or a more regular time in the office, it's all unclear. But what's really interesting to me is just how different so many of these companies are in terms of their approach and how CEOs really disagree on on this across the board. I think the scale is very much tilting towards mandate return to office. And Todd, this is something I've talked about on the podcast in the in the past, and it's something that Rich Barton echoed in his remarks in our interview. And that is, there's a power grab going on here. Rich Barton referred to it as these companies lost, and I'm doing the air quotes, territory during COVID. They lost power, and, and they lost their ability to get people into the office, and they couldn't control them as much. And I do think that the, many of these companies that are mandating back in the office, mandating a more structured approach to work, and like with the layoffs that are going on, they're trying to reinstate themselves in, a, in, a, in an authority position. Because let's face it, prior to COVID and through a good part of COVID, workers were calling a lot of the shots at these companies, whether it was the demands they had on for their salaries or the social issues they were taking up. And I think that that is changing in this new world. And that's really interesting to watch that dynamic play out. Well, to your point, John, Zillow still does have space in the Russell Investment Center. It's ostensible HQ in downtown Seattle. It's just that they don't mandate that workers show up there every day. It does feel like this is different points on the spectrum and Zillow is at one end and Amazon is perhaps closer to the other but I can't help but appreciate the entrepreneurial way that Rich Barton is looking at this. He sees the way the trend is headed and he sees how to go with that flow to his own advantage and to the advantage of his company. He points out that he's able to have a much more diverse workforce, just as one example, through this. Yeah. And he would even argue that now his data set that he's using to determine his workforce is now biased because now, obviously, Zillow has the reputation as this place that's remote first. So there are going to be people that prefer an in-office environment that are going to self-select out of applying to that company. And those that are more biased towards a 
remote work setting that are going to apply. And so in some regards, the experiment doesn't make as much sense at, at Zillow because they've, they've put their stake in the sand on this and they've been very vocal about it. This is going to be one that we're going to be tracking, especially come May 1st, when all of those Amazon employees come back. Amazon has been clear that they're not budging on this. This is something that Andy Jassy truly believes in as the CEO, or at least says he believes in, that this is better for the company long-term if these employees can collaborate in person more often than they do remotely. And I think this one is going to be a really interesting one to watch for the rest of this year. Yeah, Amazon's going to have to stock up their free banana supply that they <laughs> about to employees there there's going to be a run on bananas in seattle for those that don't know amazon uh set up a program and started handing out bananas to anybody who would pass by on the city streets so right well better a run on bananas than a run on the bank i always say yeah that is true a run on bananas than a run on the bank that's a good one yeah but we should be down there on may 1st and have some unique coverage going on when they return to the office all right john well coming up I'm going to let Satya Nadella try and convince you that the world is now changing and the way that we work is fundamentally changing because of artificial intelligence. That's coming up next. This GeekWire podcast is sponsored in part by Yale University Press. Are you concerned about the rise of AI and how it will impact our society? Every day, artificial intelligence presents us with urgent ethical challenges. How do we harness this extraordinary technology to empower rather than oppress? Nigel Shadbolt and Roger Hampson have written a how-to for building ethical machine intelligence. Their new book, As If Human, Ethics and Artificial Intelligence, is now available wherever books are sold. Welcome back. It's Todd Bishop with John Cook. You're listening to the GeekWire podcast. Let's let Satya Nadella set up our next segment. Here is the Microsoft CEO speaking this week at an event where the company introduced a new AI product called Microsoft 365 Copilot that brings artificial intelligence to the company's core productivity apps, including Word, Excel, PowerPoint, Outlook, and other programs. We believe this next generation of AI will unlock a new wave of productivity growth with powerful co-pilots designed to remove the drudgery from our daily tasks and jobs, freeing us to rediscover the joy of creation. Up to now, we have envisioned a future of computing as an extension of human intellect and human action. Today is the start of the next step in this journey with powerful foundation models and capable co-pilots accessible via the most universal interface, natural language. This will radically transform how computers help us think, plan, and act. Just as we can't imagine computing today without a keyboard, mouse, or multi-touch, going forward, we won't be able to imagine computing without co-pilots and natural language prompts that intuitively help us with continuation, summarization, chain of thought reasoning, reviewing, modifying, and acting. John, just watching you listen to that, I wish I had been taking video. Oh. You were clearly impacted by Satya's message and perhaps not in the way that he intended. Who talks like this? He's like so polished. I think he needs to take it down from about 11 <laughs> on the speaker training 
and go <laughs> go down to about a seven. You know, like that is not relatable at all. It's not relatable. It's like he's excited, John. He's a good speaker. Like it's very, it's so perfect that it's doesn't come across as genuine, and it's hard to follow as a result. Okay, it's like it, it was like that was put into an AI. Was that AI? Was that AI Sapia? No, it was because like it didn't sound like a real person to me. It really did not sound like a real person. Okay, so that was truly Sapia, and I. Well, I do want to say in his defense and in Microsoft's defense on this one, you do not have the full benefit as we sit here of having watched the 20 minute video where they showed the examples of what Satya was talking about, such as the ability to join a meeting late and say into the chat, summarize for me the key points of what I've missed and have it return that for you as you go, such as the ability to say, take this document and turn it into a PowerPoint presentation for me with animations and transitions or the new superpowers that they're going to be bringing to your inbox where they actually surface the emails that are the true priorities for you. And I could go on and on and on. There were some really interesting examples that Microsoft showed in canned demos. And that is the key. This was a pre-recorded video with canned demos, not live demos. And this is where the rubber is going to meet the road because you've got this competition going on between Microsoft and Google. Google had a similar announcement this week for Google Workspace, kind of preempting Microsoft in the same way that they did with the Bing announcement where Microsoft says they're going to have a news event about a certain thing. And Google three days earlier says, oh, by the way, we're doing this thing. <laughs> I, I think it was Ina Fried at Axios had a great column about this, talking about how the big battles of tech are back and yes. how much that, how interesting that is to see these two titans fighting it out in the PR trenches. That was a great yes. piece. I think it was, I think it was Ina that had that. But Satya Nadella's proposition here is that, as he said, we will look at navigating computers without these co-pilots in the same way that now, today, we would look at trying to navigate a computer without a keyboard and mouse. It's just going to become intuitive. And that, to me, is the big unanswered question. I've been using Microsoft's Bing chat search, and I have to tell you, I have to really stop and say, oh, I could use Bing for this. It's not natural to me right now to ask questions rather than just search keywords. It's not, I'm not quite there. And so if anything, using Bing has made me a little more skeptical of whether this stuff is actually going to become mainstream. And, and to me, that's the big unanswered question. Is there going to be enough value provided in this AI to truly make it so that people go to it and don't come back? And by the way, the key announcement this week was that Microsoft is integrating all this stuff into its core office products. And that is huge. It's much bigger for Microsoft than the search stuff was. Search is a single digit percentage, about five or 6% of Microsoft's overall revenue last fiscal year, compared to Office, which is more than a third, more than 33% of Microsoft's revenue last year. So this stuff actually matters way more than the Bing stuff to Microsoft right now. I think it's cool. And I see the business case for sure. And I think Microsoft's in a great position to deliver on this. And one other point on that, it's still really early too. I mean, this yes. is pretty early in, in the ball game, but anytime it's like, Todd, remember when you would go to Comdex 
or the Consumer Electronics Show. These old, well, Consumer Electronics Show is still around, but it was kind of dead during COVID. But, you know, these giant big tech conventions and they were there to show you the future. And someone gave me some advice a long time ago. It's like, when you went to Comdex, you went to CES, really most of the stuff takes, I mean, most of this takes, this will take seven years. It's like, this is seven years away. And I wonder if that's the case here, that this is all really interesting and cool, but is it just going to take a while for it to really be integrated and really have an impact? I would say maybe with the AI stuff, frankly, it probably is going to be quicker than that. I think you could certainly make that case with a lot of the, you know, a number of consumer electronics shows ago, there was all the hype around uh, autonomous driving and autonomous vehicles. And I think very much, probably not seven years, it's probably 17 years ahead of things there. With AI, I mean, there are a lot of use cases here and it's some of those examples you were giving, gosh, no one likes building a PowerPoint. You could just tell it to build a PowerPoint for you based on the data you have. That's pretty cool. Another example that really resonated with me was saying, hey, look at this Excel spreadsheet and tell me what matters here. I mean, that's that's pretty cool. So do you have access to it as a no. tester? No, I don't. Unlike Bing, you have to be one of these companies that they've chosen initially to test it out because that's one of the things is it works based in part on your own internal Microsoft graph, as they call it, which is your content and your directory of people who work in your organization. And it makes different references and inferences behind the scenes as it's pulling data and generating this content for you. Well, can you get us on the list, Todd, at GeekWire? Because I was talking to an attorney this week who's really into the generative AI stuff. And he was like, I would love to have this on GeekWire. So I could just go to a page on GeekWire and say, I want to know all the climate tech startups that have raised Series A rounds in the last three years that are in the Pacific Northwest and would be able to pull that data from all of our stories and spit out a result to him so he could do his research in a much more effective way. So I'd have to test this, but I would contend that you might be able to do that with Bing, actually. Mm -hmm. Just say... Focus on this domain and answer this question. I think that might be possible. So that wouldn't be this Microsoft 365 Copilot. Yeah, it's more of a search. It's more of a search component. Yeah, that should be possible. Do you have the ability to put up parameters on Bing that you're only searching a certain data set? Yes. Well, you can say focus this query on a certain page if you're on that page as you're browsing and you're using the Bing sidebar to, to search. I'd have to check and see if you can say, focus this query on this domain like geekwire.com. I'm not sure if that's possible. So would the difference be, and I'm using GeekWire as an example here again, we have our comprehensive list of funding deals that we track at GeekWire, all the recent venture capital financings. And we keep a list in the database. And if we put that into Excel as an example, and then ran this co-pilot functionality against that, could we use the example of what you said before? Could you say, look at all these funding deals and tell me the trends that matter? Yes. And then it might say, oh, wow, there's been an upsurge in climate tech investing and a downsurge in investing in software as a service. Yes, that is the concept. I don't know if that specific capability would work in its current form. And that is one downside of the fact that we don't have access to the Microsoft 
365 Copilot. That's why I'm asking you to request it because look at these great use cases we have. Yes, we do. We have some great use cases. One of Microsoft's points was people only use about 10% of the available features and tools in a program like Excel. And by simply shifting it to natural language, you're going to be thinking about the things you want to do rather than the tools that you know or you don't know. And so you can see in that way, it really does start to support this idea of the fundamental shift in the way you use computers and unlocking these greater capabilities. That, that part makes sense to me. That makes sense to me too. Yeah, I like that. Whether it's actually going to be effective translating those natural language queries into the results that you want, to me, is really where the question is. And we won't know that until we actually use it. Yeah, fascinating stuff. But memo to Satya, tone it down a bit. Is that what you're saying, John? <laughs> oh my gosh, just listening to that was, wow, very surprising. It was, it was hard for me to listen to it and get any of the substance. Well, I will say again, in his defense, you didn't have the context. I didn't the have the context. Up. There was okay, a lot more to it. Still. He went historical on it. I mean, he went way back as he's wont to do in terms of the foundations of computing. So perhaps you just need to listen to the whole thing, but I agree. It can be a little much. <laughs> a little much. All right. Well, I think you're doing a great job covering this and keeping up on it. I, I know you're into it, right? You love covering this stuff. I do because of the possibilities and not just what Microsoft's doing, but what entrepreneurs are doing with it. We've talked to some of them on the show and I just like the fact that there's this green field that's here and you don't know what's going to get planted in that field. And I think it's fascinating. Well, and, and it does speak uh, not to go like down this path, but like the whole idea of like antitrust and why these big tech companies are potentially need to be reined in. What are the issues that they're talking about related to antitrust? They're probably pretty antiquated when you think about it in the context of, of this stuff. Wow. Although they might be, they might argue that, oh, well, Google and Microsoft sit on all the data. So they're yes. the only ones that can do this. Well, right? it's not just the data. In fact, it's more the computing power, the huge data centers. There's a reason that OpenAI is partnering with Microsoft, giant data centers with these cloud supercomputers. And that's the reason that OpenAI is able to do all these amazing things with GPT-4, which they just announced this week. So to your point, John, I actually think that makes the case for antitrust controls on these companies because they're leveraging their market power in the cloud to extend that into an entirely new market. That would be the argument that a regulator would make. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. As I said, I'm arguing against myself. So <laughs> thanks for listening to GeekWire. And I will link to everything that we talked about on the show in the show notes on this episode. Until next time, I'm Todd Bishop. And I'm John Cook. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the GeekWire podcast.